the great burning question at the end of the war was how the United States was going to avert a return to the great unemployment of the Depression period of the 1930s. During the last phase of the war, production in the United States was double what it had been in its best pre-war year. And this exceedingly high production had been achieved with 10 million men under arms. There was only one way that the return to the unemployment of the Depression could be averted, and that was by creating foreign markets for our overproduction. This was the economic rationale behind the Marshall Plan and the reconstruction of the economy of Europe. The CIA comes into this because the political forces in Western Europe after World War II uh, that were prevailing had been the backbone of the resistance to fascism, and they were the left-wing political parties, principally the communist parties, uh, especially in France and Italy. These parties, knowing that the reconstruction of their economies would uh, bring economic and political dependence on the United States, opposed the Marshall Plan. And the CIA was partly set up in order to combat, um, on a political warfare basis, the efforts by left-wing political organizations in Europe to uh, impede the success of the Marshall Plan. The CIA, from the very beginning, at least as early as 1951, has used the information that it has collected and it has used the information in order to penetrate and to manipulate the institutions of power in whatever country it is operating in order to influence the course of events in those countries. And essentially, this uh, boils down to propping up those forces which are considered to be the friendly forces and in penetrating, dividing, weakening, and ultimately destroying those forces which are considered to be the enemy forces. The institutions of power which are um, penetrated and attempts are made to manipulate them are the political parties, the security services, the military institutions, the trade union organizations especially, the youth and student movements, cultural organizations, professional societies, and in a very big way, the public information media. One of the principal mechanisms which the CIA used after World War II um, in its programs to influence the course of events in different countries was the uh, use of front organizations. For example, in the youth field, the CIA set up the World Assembly of Youth, which continues today with its headquarters in Brussels. In the student field, the CIA set up the coordinating secretariat of national unions of students. In the trade union field, the CIA founded, or helped to found, the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions with its headquarters in Brussels, which continues to exist today. The purpose of all these different activities, the political and the uh, front organizations in the different sectors of the population, were to uh, fill this political vacuum that existed after World War II and to fill it with those forces which would be favorable to close relations with the United States, the so-called Atlantic Alliance, and in order to preclude any participation in these organizations and in the national, the political life, by left-wing forces such as the communist parties. It was to shove them aside and to isolate them so that development of Europe uh, for as many generations as possible could be, uh, could be brought under the control of those forces which are friendliest to the United States and to the interest of our corporations which were moving in part and parcel with the reconstruct reconstruction of Europe after World War II. The CIA worked through the reactionary forces essentially uh, or the, the middle roading or the social democratic forces, whichever ones they're trying to support. They work through these people. 
in the CIA, there is a, a distinction made between the career U.S. citizen employees, like I was, uh, that is the officers and staff, and the people who actually do the work at the end of the line, uh, who are the agents. At any one time, uh, down in, Latin, in Ecuador, we had on our payroll, or in an intimate working relationship with our station, um, one vice president, a president of the Chamber of Deputies, a president of the Senate, a vice president of the Senate, a number of senators, a number of deputies, uh, the secretary general of the Democratic so Socialist Party. Uh, we even created a party down there, which we called the Popular Revolutionary Liberal Party, which would appeal to a lot of different people. We had extensive propaganda operations during this period also. The outstanding liberal columnist of the country, Gustavo Salgado, who wrote for El Comercio, which was the, one of the principal dailies under pen names, working for us, writing up our material and publishing it as if it were his own. We would publish small notices, which would be practically hysterical outcries against the growth of communism in Ecuador or a specific issue such as the visit of diplomats from some communist country. Our participation consisted in creating the conditions of fear and at times hysteria with regard to the growth of the left-wing political organizations in Ecuador, such as the communist uh, organizations, and um, the fear with regard to the influence of the Cuban Revolution. Our themes were the threat of these developments to traditional Ecuadorian values. And when I speak of Ecuador, I am speaking of most of the rest of, the Latin, of Latin America, too. The family, religion, and tradition, essentially. The use of forged documents and false documents is another uh, area in which the CIA can bring about a very timely um, uh, effect. In Ecuador, for example, we uh, at one point wanted to uh, expose the preparations for guerrilla activity of a particular organization, and while one of its leaders was in Cuba on a trip, we wrote up what would appear to be, the way we wrote it, his report to the Cubans. We put this report in a toothpaste tube. This was planted in his luggage when he returned on this trip and discovered by our people in the um, Treasury Ministry, and he was immediately thrown into jail, and when the report was finally published in the newspapers, it caused a sensation all across the country. We were able to force the Ecuadorian government to break relations with Cuba, and at the same time we were able to promote repression of left-wing political organizations, eventually establishing a military junta, which took over in July of 1963. Every CIA station during that period, and I would expect today, was required to maintain what was called the subversive control watch list. This was a list of the most important left-wing political activists um, in the city or in the country. And the list would include not only their name, but their, the name of their mother, the name of their father, of their children, of their wife, their address where they lived, the address where they worked, the places they would go with their friends, um, clubs they might belong to, uh, where they would um, undertake their leisure activities, everything we might need to know to for sudden action against that person. These lists would be usually maintained in the CIA offices and kept up to date. 
but whenever necessary, they were turned over to the local police or the local military authorities for action on the part of those authorities. In Chile from 1972 to 1973, the same sorts of operations were going on there to uh, make it impossible for the Allende regime to govern after earlier attempts to prevent him from taking office failed, such as the assassination of General Snyder and the attempts to bribe the Chilean Congress. Later on, with the help of the international lending institutions and those financial institutions controlled as part of the United States government were able to exert the financial squeeze on Chile, which resulted in great difficulty in obtaining short-term credits, creating scarcity of many different types of products. Then such organizations as, a, as the Truckers Union uh, had legitimate grievances on which to, to base their complaints. CIA by financing the, the um, truck drivers and the shopkeepers and the other organizations which professionals for example who um, uh, organized against the Allende regime were able to create the conditions and the appearances of chaos and disorganization which will always appeal to right-wing um, discipline-minded military leaders who will intervene and justify their intervention on the restoration of national order of the restoration of national dignity and the obtention of peace. And this, in the case of Chile, of course, and many other countries, is the piece of the grave for a lot of people. We have a government agencies like the Congress, the Senate Committee, for example, oversight of, to oversee the CIA, talking about the agency now being under control and that the abuses of the past have now been eliminated, as if the agency wasn't under control all along and as if what they call abuses weren't ordered by presidents. The main argument is not with the agency, which is an instrument for policy execution, but the main argument is with the president and the people outside the CIA who determine the interests which have to be protected and how, who determine American foreign policy and then call upon the CIA and other agencies to execute that policy. What I would like to know, and I know many other people would like to know too, is not only the history, but the current relations between the CIA and the SAVAK in Iran, for example. Imagine all the Iranians who would like to know that. With the Kopkamtiv in Indonesia. Imagine the 100,000 political prisoners or so in Indonesia right now who are being uh, held without trial and have been some for over 10 years by this security service, which has had its history of relationships with the CIA. Whether the institutional relationship continues with the Korean CIA right now, with the DINA in Chile, with the DOPS and the CODI and the other organizations in um, Brazil, with the Uruguayan security services, with the Argentine Federal Police there. All of these relationships of the past probably continue to today in one degree or another. And I don't see how the uh, Carter administration or any other administration can talk about human rights while these institutional contacts remain and while these services receive in one degree or another, support, guidance, um, and encouragement from the CIA. You've been listening to excerpts of interviews with Philip Agee, ex-CIA case officer from 1957 to 1969. These were interviews featured in the classic documentary history of the CIA entitled On Company Business. Agee was stationed in various parts of Latin America, including Ecuador, Uruguay, and Mexico throughout the 1960s. As one of the first whistleblowers to go public in 1975, AG not only exposed the covert activities of the U.S. government, 
but provided the critical analysis, including political economy, to contextualize the mechanics of U.S. imperialism. In addition to writing his tell-all book in 1975 entitled CIA Diary Inside the Company, where he named all the actual names and operations, A.G. started Covert Action magazine, originally named Covert Action Information Bulletin, in 1978 with Lewis Wolfe, William Schapp, Ellen Ray, James and Elsie Wilcott, William Kunstler, and Michael Ratner. The magazine was created in order to carry on the work of the preceding publication called Counterspy, which had been shut down as a result of CIA harassment. Over the years, contributors to the magazine have included critics of U.S. foreign policy such as Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Michael Parenti, Philip Wheaton, Sean Gervasi, and Christopher Hitchens. By the printing of the second issue, 11 bookstores promoted the stapled newsletter. And by issue number three, the official library of the CIA had actually sent in its subscription request, which was then posted on the cover of that third issue. You can read these in all the back issues in the archives of covertactionmagazine.com. The publication became of interest to Congress in 1982 with the passage of the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, which made the practice of revealing the names of undercover officers illegal under U.S. law, even if the information was derived from public, unclassified sources. Over the years, the magazine worked with and supported whistleblowers like John Stockwell, Ralph McGeehee, David McMichael, Jennifer Harbury, Ambassador Colonel Anne Wright, Christopher Simpson, and Wade Mattis, publishing hundreds of articles on CIA covert operations and intelligence-related disclosures, including undercover NSA and FBI operations in the U.S. and around the world. When you think of the more recent whistleblowers, including Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, John Kiriakou, and Jeffrey Sterling, and Daniel Hale, we are talking about a long history of whistleblowers going back to Philip Agee and Daniel Ellsberg, Anthony Russo, and more. As covered in earlier episodes, Cam played a, an important role in the making of Oliver Stone's JFK in the early 1990s. Ellen Ray and Bill Schapp encouraged, edited, and published Jim Garrison's book entitled On the Trail of the Assassins. They then handed that book over to Oliver Stone in an elevator at the Havana Film Festival in the late 1980s, and he was quickly convinced to make the film. In 1992, with the issue 43, number 43, the magazine was renamed as Covert Action Quarterly and won awards from organizations including Project Censored for stories like Phi Beta Capitalism about corporate influence on universities. So Covert Action Quarterly ceased publication of its print magazine in 2005 with issue 78 and later relaunched online as Covert Action Magazine in 2018. Numerous articles from Covert Action Quarterly were collected in two anthologies, Covert Action, The Roots of Terrorism and Bioterror, Manufacturing Wars the American Way, both by Ellen Ray and Bill Schaap, and published by Ocean Press in 2003. A.G. and Lewis Wolfe also published together Dirty Work, The CIA in Western Europe, 
and Dirty Work 2, The CIA in Africa, with Alan Ray, Bill Schapp, and Carl Van Meter. Lou Wolf is the lone surviving co-founder of Covert Action magazine. In this intriguing interview, David Giglio sat down with myself and Lou to discuss our experiences with the magazine and living and working with my father, Philip Agee. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin. This is the official podcast of Covert Action Magazine. I'm David Giglio, ourhiddenhistory.org, just filling in as a host for, for today. So we have Lewis Wolf and Chris Agee, Research Director and Executive Editor of Covert Action Magazine, The Rebirth, respectively. Hi, David. Hey, Chris. How you doing? Lewis? Welcome. Thank you. That's good. Well, this should be interesting. We're going to learn about the history of Covert Action Magazine. And Lou, as one of the co-founders, is going to tell us about how he came to be involved with Philip Agee, Chris's father. And Chris is going to also tell us about his experience growing up uh, around the magazine and helping to give it its, its next incarnation as it is now at Covert Action magazine.com. Well, Lou, let's start with, you founded the magazine with several people, but before that, you decided to work with Philip Agee. Do you want to tell us what you were doing with yourself around that time and how you came to meet Phil? Before I met Phil, I lived in and worked in Laos and right next door to Vietnam during the Vietnam War, I was a conscientious objector and I refused to join the military. So I ended up working in Laos and it transformed my life really very early in my life at the age of 24, arriving there in the middle of a war, but it was a secret war, a war about which the American people knew nothing, zero, because it was a secret war, a CIA war. And that's no exaggeration. I lived there from 1964 to 1967. And when I returned home from Laos, I was, I was aware of something called the CIA. I'd never heard of it when I arrived there at the age of 24. Then I, I decided to go and, and, and I heard later when Phil Agee's book published, was published on, on company business, a CIA diary, which ended up being being published in, I believe it was 14 languages and it was a bestseller. It was blocked by the U.S. government. They didn't allow it to come into the U.S. It was published first by Penguin Books in the U.K., but people were smuggling them into, into, into the U.S. Anyway, I decided I wanted to, because when Phil's book was published in, in 1975, I decided I wanted to meet this man. So I went to London. And it happens the first, his first public meeting was at Conway Hall. It was a standing room audience. He had never spoken in public before that. And it was on three, it was this picture yourself, picture a building, three, three levels. And I, I got a seat way upstairs on the, on the third level. And Phil decided at that point delivered a, the first ever public statement about his book and why he, he resigned from the CIA and went public after his three deployments with the CIA in, 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 in 
in Ecuador and I'm blanking on the third country. Mexico. Uh, Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Lou, uh, did, when you met my dad, Mexico. didn't he, didn't you say something like, I, I can't believe that uh, you're talking to me or something like that? Well, I, I went downstairs to, to, I, I really wanted to shake his hand and, and when I approached him, he was surrounded by other people wanting his autograph and so forth. Uh, and finally I, I shook his hand and I said, you know, I just can't believe that the CIA hasn't killed you after having read his book. And he said, he said to me later, not that evening, but later on, he said, I thought the CIA was sent you to get close to me. Needless to say, with, within a very short time, within minutes after that meeting, we embraced and we said, and I told him I wanted to work with him on any, on any condition, unconditional. I wanted to help him and support his work. And we didn't look back from then ever. And Lou happened to be the guy that came around the house often because he was often traveling and to visit with us and stayed with us. And they were working on, on, on new books and all kinds of issues. And Lou would come in. And I have to tell you that Lou was by far the nicest friend that my father had. And he quickly became part of the family. And uh, very, we, we became very close and we have been forever since uh, the mid seventies. So that's, so it's great, Lou, to, to, to be, to be working with you again now and, and, and all the wonderful things that, that we've been able to do. Lou, what, isn't it true that as you traveled back and forth to visit with my father, isn't it true that you were like often being pulled aside at airports and all of your documents were being photocopied and you were being interrogated each time you tried to visit my father? I'm afraid that's true. Yes. The most memorable of the, of those occasions was when, when I came to arrived in Heathrow airport and in, in London and I produced my passport and I saw on the screen, I saw the, the officer who was interviewing me. It happened to be a woman and her eyes, and she had eyeglasses and the screen I could read, or I could see in her, in the screen reflected in, in her glasses. And she said, Mr. Wolf, would you wait here? I'll be, I'll be right back. And, uh, and I could see in her, her, her whole demeanor changed when she saw what she saw on the screen, which was about me and my, my friendship and, and, and working closely with Philip Agee. Of course, at that point in time, on that day, Phil had been deported from the UK as he was in fact. Finally, after several years, he was deported from seven different European countries, not by those governments, but by, I should say, at the behest of the, of the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. You've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin, the official podcast of Covert Action Magazine. To listen to the full episode, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Covert Action Bulletin. Feel free to also check out our magazine at covertactionmagazine.com, where you will find hundreds of articles we have published since 1978, exposing the nefarious covert activity of U.S. imperialism and plutocrats worldwide. I'm Chris Agee, Executive Editor, signing off. Until the next episode, remember, educate, agitate, and organize.